Well, at least we're closing out strong. You know, it's funny. This episode was literally not written, basically at the last minute. Usually when an episode is written this late into production, it turns out to be a mess. This episode, however, actually is pretty strong. I mean, there's some flaws with it, don't mistake me, but it manages to slide in to be really good, and I think there's two big reasons why. Reason number one, it's predominantly a character piece, and they already had the pieces in play of what they wanted to do with the Maquis. I hate to point this out, but you'll notice that uh, Necheyev is in this episode, Golivek is in this episode. They go out of their way to specifically show Klingon, Vulcan, and American Indians when it comes to the Maquis group. Uh, the woman who plays Kalita actually will come back later in the episode Defiant. And, my personal favorite one, Rolaren specifically refers to Chakotay. Oh, not by name, of course. And, in fact, Voyager would then torpedo this. However, both uh, the actual official Star Trek.com thing and the uh, guide I've got right here both indicate that the intent was the instructor that she refers to you know, that back at Starfleet who resigned to support the Maquis was supposed to be Chakotay. So they already had an idea. This is to be a launch point. They wanted to really push into Voyager. And they wanted to be a big character piece for Rome. This is the funny part, though. If you'll forgive me, if I if you don't mind my reading this. Um, so they wanted to get Michelle Forbes back. And so Jerry Taylor says, We contacted Michelle's people, and the word came back to me. It was possible she'd do the, the episode, but it would depend on a phone conversation I would have to have with her in order to see that this was a story she wanted to do. Well, this is the next to last episode, and we didn't have a story. We had days before we had we were, we were supposed to have a script. We couldn't take the time to develop a story if we didn't know she was going to be in it. So I got on the phone with her and did a tap dance. I was concocting things out of thin air. Ro does this, and she does that. It's an intense story of a woman's personal moral dilemma. Sounded very intense and emotional, and apparently it worked, because within minutes I, after I'd gotten off the phone with her, the word came back that she would do the episode. Then we had to write the story out of something that I had spun out. Now, again, you'd think, well, that sounds like a terrible idea. But as weird as this may sound, it's it, it makes perfect sense to me that that would turn into a good story. Because, again, it's all about trying to sell the character moment. And, I mean, well, this is a, an Echeverria script, which was also worked on by Naren Shankar, and it's a big character piece centered around a strong guest star. Of course it's going to work out. Now, <clears throat> Roe... There's this great scene at the beginning. Roe Ro and Stuart have wonderful... I should say Forbes and Stuart have wonderful chemistry. It's actually great. And even better, made better by the fact that Patrick Stewart was actually directing this episode. Although, poor Stuart. He apparently uh, was basically going full... He was crunch-timing. Uh, instead of taking a break, he did the play, which I referenced earlier back in London. And then he went right into this episode, which he directed and starred in. Then he did the next episode, All Good Things, which he was very busy in. Then he started work on the movie. He was a little burnt out. It's probably one of the reasons why Stuart walked away from Star Trek for so many, many years. Because of the bad taste left in his mouth at the end of Season 7, which he's spoken of several times. But... There's this great moment where Roe is, you know, greeting everyone, and she's kind of awkward, and and, just, and then Picard's like, "Could you come to the bridge? Hi, I just want, wanted to get you out of there. You know, you looked like you were being overwhelmed." And she's like, "No, yeah, I, I like everyone. I just kind of wanted to do it one on one." <clears throat> so then we we cut to the actual bridge scene, and there's actually a surprisingly good combat scene between the Galar and the Maquis ships. Cool, cool. That's pretty cool. How did the Maquis take out a Galar? 
those Galors are pretty damned good in combat. They're basically a match, if not better, than a Galaxy class, because while in terms of overall stats they might be the equivalent of a Galaxy, they are more combat-focused. And yet these Maquis managed to take them down? I'm actually pretty impressed at the fact that they managed that. So, the Maquis are Federation citizens. The episode makes repeated reference to the fact that these people in the demilitarized zone are Federation citizens, which is basically the source of all of the problem here. I'm not going to go over this yet again. It's just interesting to think about this in with the advantage of hindsight. We've already discussed many times over on Deep Space Nine how much the Federation citizens part and the, the legality part of the, the Maquis versus the Federations versus the demilitarized zone versus the Cardassians causes so many issues. As usual, I feel this whole situation was just a little bit poorly designed, and I've, I've, I've talked that to death. Let's, let's move on. So, <clears throat> I do have to say something really quick, though. Um, demilitarized zone. Now, I was like, well, hang on, Lore. You're a moron. And I was like, yes, you're right. I am a moron. Yes, you're a moron. Oh, I was going to keep going with that. But the point is, I may be weird, but I thought that demilitarized zones were basically neutral, that they weren't actually territory controlled by either side, that that's kind of the point. I mean, on a piece of paper or on a map, it might be that this part is this side and this part is that side, but functionally and practically it's considered neutral territory or no man's land because of the fact that no one has the right to actually do anything that could actually impact sovereignty. You can't send in troops, you can't send in ships, you can't fly sh you can't fly things over it. It's neutral, right? And yet here we are, and all of these issues top come up because of the demilitarized zone, which apparently they still have jurisdiction in, even though they don't. Like, they send Starfleet personnel into a DMZ bar to find fake row, in order, and, and they, they claim they have jurisdiction and authority to shut down the bar, which, by the way, fun little thing, they're like, we'll shut this bar down if she's been here. Oh yeah, she's totally been here. And then they leave. <laughs> what? Anyways. <clears throat> like, where does that jurisdiction come from, exactly? Later on in this episode, there are several Cardassians who may or may not be part of the Union who come in with guns, too. How do they... Like, there's just a lot of things here that just don't quite line up that probably could have if they spent a little bit more time polishing and figuring out the details, as I've referenced before. Sorry for going into it yet again, but they keep making references to the DMZ, and almost all of this episode is about this being in the DMZ. <sighs> Necheyev shows up, once again, better, uh, just like in the previous episode, Journey's End. It's actually interesting how sympathetic and intelligent she is here, considering her reaction over in DS9. She actually flat out says that she's pretty sure the Cardassians are in fact supplying, and have been caught supplying their side. And yet... Over on Deep Space Nine, there's a bit where Cisco challenges her, saying, you know, are you sure we should be dealing, keeping to the treaty, because it's a treaty that Cardassians are not keeping to, to which her reaction is, are you questioning Federation policy? I have a feeling that this is actually a conflict of writers who were taking her in different directions, because these, these episodes all happen basically at the same time, real life-wise, you know, DS9's Maquis episodes were coming out while this stuff was coming out. So, I can kind of see that. But at the same time, I'd really have to do some stretching to make that work in character, in alpha canon, if you will. So, <clears throat> Starfleet has jurisdiction, I already mentioned that. Khalid is there, I already mentioned that. Uh, I mentioned that thing. The Maquis are rather paranoid. In fact, 
If I was to be so bold, I'd say the way they're written in the recruitment phase is the worst part of the episode because they are written in the same manner that Hollywood always portrays criminal organizations. No, seriously, it's it's. I'm sure you've seen the story before. I'm I'm a good cop, but I have to join the 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 crooks in order to figure out what's going on. And then they join the crooks, and the crooks actually aren't that bad. <laughs> and then they become sympathetic, and then their their loyalties are torn. You know, it's that it's that story. It's almost copy paste. And the the scene where the, the, she's kind of interrogated and grilled being brought in is a little bit too rote for me. It also doesn't help that the guy playing uh, Macius, I don't know, he. He was kind of weird for me. He didn't work for me, you know? Like, he wasn't bad, but I, I never believed the character. I'm curious what you guys think of that, because he was just kind of, I, I get the point. He was supposed to be the elderly father figure replacement for Roe in direct competition with Picard, but it never really worked that way for me, and I'll talk more about that later. So anyways, the Maquis show up. They're super paranoid. I, I, I was, actually have a note here that I wonder if the Obsidian Order has been giving them issues, even though in out-of-universe, the Obsidian Order hasn't been invented yet, but then again, neither is Section 31. But then I started thinking about it. I wonder if Starfleet Intelligence has been active in the Demilitarized Zone. That'd be fun. And they should be, actually, even though it is actually a violation of the treaty. But you, you could see why they'd be doing that. If nothing else, you think Section 31 would at least take a little bit of an interest in this one. You know, passive. This is kind of low tier for what they usually deal with. They're probably going to be busy with the Dominion soon. <clears throat> Anyways. So, the Cardassians approach... And uh, they, they have this overall strategy, which actually makes perfect sense. Kind of poke, poke, you know, make things unpleasant, make things uncomfortable. Don't really go completely over it. Don't just straight up attack the place, because that would actually be a far more overt treaty violation, which would then give political sway to the Federation side against the Cardassians. And as, as we've established, especially over in DS9, the Cardassians really want this treaty just as much as the Feds do. They're both profiting from it, or at least the, the cards are profiting from it. The Spoonhead, excuse me. Now, the reason I bring this up, though, is because um, the all of this approach to make things unpleasant doesn't actually work. <laughs> it's not actually going to, to get people to be like, ah, screw this, I'm just going to go someplace else. It's just going to get people to dig their heels in. In fact, as I've mentioned before, the mere fact that these people are Federation citizens basically guarantees that this is going to drag out another Cardassian Federation conflict, and indeed would have done so if not for the fact that, that the Klingons, spoiler alert, decided to pound the ever-loving crap out of the Cardassians. If it wasn't for that, the Maquis probably would have dragged the Federations into yet another war with the Cardassians. Just interesting to think about, but I'm sorry, I'm getting too much into political stuff. You don't care about that. What you really care about is that the Maquis are seen as sympathetic through the eyes of an individual because that's the best way to see an organization. Uh, we, as human beings, tend to perceive things through the eyes of the individual anyways. You know, it's hard to think of a massive amalgamate blob as anything but a massive amalgamate blob. And then you see a person, you know, and it's like, oh, well, they're okay. And then they need medical supplies. Now, this is interesting to me because why? They have replicators. Now, hang on. I'm going to headcanon a little bit here. I've always personally believed that there's different types and, uh, let's say, qualities of replicators. That there's the really, really good, really precise, large-scale replicators, which they use for heavy construction. And those ones, they, they're so difficult and precise and functionally, there's so much... It's so difficult to make those that they only have so many of them, for whatever reason. 
And so those are the ones that they used to make the really big, really precise, you know, those things can make basically anything, right? Then you have the large-scale industrial replicators, which make stuff en masse. They're designed to make, you know, fairly basic stuff in huge quantities. Then you've got, like, your typical replicators, which are predominantly food-based and so forth and so on. Now, this whole headcanon has one little layer to the bottom there, and that's the crap uh, replicators. We'll just call them the civilian replicators, because, you know, you could see why civilian-grade replicators would be lower quality than military-grade, right? So the idea here is maybe they have civilian-grade replicators, which basically can't actually make, uh, you know, health stuff, health packs, you know, medical supplies. Okay, that makes a, an extremely small amount of sense, right up until the fact that you remember that medical supplies are the kind of things that you'd think would actually be pretty high priority for a civilian-grade uh, replicator. So no matter how you dice this, this is kind of a, huh? Of course, the obvious answer is whatever it is can't be replicated for whatever reason, although they never address that. So, they go to get medical supplies. There's a, sh and I love this, by the way. Sure, we're getting a request for aid from a ship by a protostar. We can't send a message to it because no message will reach it because of the interference. And nobody says, well, how do we get a message from them? Like, at no point does anyone bring that up. And then they show up and they say, oh my god, our sensors don't work, even though their sensors work periodically. I get that there's a lot of interference, which just means, you know, but at the same time, there's a little bit of inconsistency there. However, I'm willing to give the scene a pass because it's actually surprisingly competent on behalf of the, of the Starfleet personnel. There's this line where uh, Kalita, I think, flat out refers to the Galaxy class, the, the Enterprise, as a fortress. I like that parallel because, to be blunt, that's how it should be. It isn't how it is. I mean, rascals exist, for God's sakes. But you can see why that is the, the thing that it probably should be perceived as, and frankly, it probably should actually be. And I love the fact that they keep up to date with what Rose doing and effectively allow her to infiltrate the ship in order to keep her cover. It's just a nice little tidbit, and it, it works very smoothly. I like the whole sequence. It's good. It's good. So, <clears throat> they, uh... <sighs> this is when the episode kind of starts to push into its direction. I have a line here. I don't want to talk about this before I talk about my final point. Actually, I have two things I want to talk about. The first is, Ro gets worried because she's going to lead these people into a Federation trap. Okay, that, that's cool. I am saying Federation specifically at this point, because even though Starfleet is implementing the policy, this is clearly Federation policy, as we've discussed previously in Journey's End. So, the consequence here, and I don't mean to sound too dismissive, is that these Maquis are going to be taken to a five-star resort. I, I'm sorry, a Federation penal colony. We've seen Federation prisons. They're nice. I have literally been to expensive hotels that are not as good as Federation prisons. Now, I know, I know, that's, that's a variance of perspective since I live here and they live there, and for them, that's probably bad living. But it's hard to feel bad for the Maquis when the consequences for their terrible actions is going to be living comfortably the rest of their lives, being cared for by the state, effectively. Anyways, I'm not saying they should be punished more, by the way. That's not what I'm saying. It's just, it's it, the, the, so much of the thrust of the episode is on that axis of the punishment that they're going to receive, the trap they're setting for them, that I'm just sitting here going, okay, but, but what's the consequence? Well, they'll be captured. Yeah, okay. okay. <clears throat> Next point. 
I mentioned earlier how the Cardassians would be smart not to do any overt action, which then immediately leads to several Cardassians actively opening fire in full view of everyone, which could be recorded or perceived or interviewed or a dozen other methods to, to prove this. If, if Frankly, if the Maquis were smart, what they would do was would be to film the whole damn thing with a tricorder and then immediately broadcast that on open message to everyone, especially the Federation, which not only would shame the Cardassians, but give the Federation tons of ammunition to use diplomatically against the Cardassians. But, of course, no one's actually thinking that direction. They just start shooting back. I get it. I do. But it does show how the Kamaki don't really have long-term thinking, which actually makes perfect sense, because if you're paying attention to the Maquis story arc, they kind of don't do anything or go anywhere up until... Oh god, I can't think of his name. The guy from DS9 defects and basically takes over the Maquis and starts giving them, you know, unification and orders and organization and starts thinking like a political entity rather than, you know, a bunch of people just fighting back against people they hate. Just just tossing all that out there because I've I've complained about this already in DS9. The Maquis story arc was actually pretty interesting. It just it was rough and the writers apparently had no idea what to do with it because oh, so they just wrote them out of existence. This happened on DS9 and Voyager. <sighs> Anyways. Poor Ro. See, this is the really interesting part of the episode for me. This is when the episode really sells me. And uh, it was actually hitting me emotionally, no joke. Ro has no loyalty to Starfleet. None. No. Ro Lauren has loyalty to Picard. She is deeply and devotedly dedicated to that man. Oh, sure, she has friends among Starfleet, and she probably considers... There's a great scene when she says goodbye to Riker. She even calls him Will. And you know, he says, you know, take care of yourself. There's, a, there's actually... It's a very brief bit, but you can tell there's an actual bond there, just briefly. It's not like she doesn't care, but her loyalty, the thing that keeps her going, is her adherence to Picard, her father figure. Now, that's a powerful thing. How many of you, you don't have to answer, but you can answer in your head or just out loud and not type it. How many of you out there have loyalty to a person? Tremendous, real, powerful, no really, I'll be there for them, hell or high water, loyalty to an individual. I know what that feels like. I have individuals, plural, five, that I am very, very, very loyalty for, loyal for, that I would literally die for. I understand that feeling extremely well. But here's the funny part. Picard does not believe in the ideal that he is championing. As I pointed out before, Picard is a disgruntled soldier following orders of a disgruntled admiral, following orders from a Federation council that not, nobody below the council actually agrees with. This is actually pretty dark, if you think about it, because Picard is being forced to be against what she is in favor of because of orders. Now, he's the one who comes down hard on her, but at every point we can tell he doesn't give a crap about that, and that is very Picard, too. He will grumble, and he will be irritated, and he will hate it, and he will try to fight it through the system, but he will still follow his orders, at least until Star Trek Insurrection happens. Now, I point all that out... <clears throat> By the way, insurrection. Just well, to continue this trend, it was the Federation Council that was the one who approved the insurrection thing. But I'm getting off topic. So, Roe is loyal to Picard, but she is also loyal to the ideal. The ideal of what the Maquis really represent. Defending oneself against oppression. 
And it is oppression, what the Cardassians are doing in the demilitarized zone and to their own, you know, to the colonists and to whatever else is going on there. It's wrong, fundamentally and brutally wrong, just as is the Union's overall approach to everything at this point in history. So she has her loyalty to an ideal and her loyalty to a person. That's the conflict of the episode. It's not about she, she must choose between the cops and the criminals. No, 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 no. One man and one concept in conflict. Now, to go back to my earlier parallel, I have loyalty to five people. I also have loyalty to several ideals. I'm not sure what I would do if I had to pick. If I had to pick between something I truly believe in and someone I truly believe in. And that's the power of it. And credit to Forbes. She does an excellent job portraying someone who's basically being shredded emotionally over all of this. The really messed up part is Picard, at every step of the line, simultaneously sympathizes, but doesn't get it. There's a line he says, I, th I don't think I wrote it down. There's a line he says where he's like, you know, it's, it's not about me, it's about you. Bro, you'll be throwing away your career. She doesn't give a damn about her career. Why do you think she went through that? Why do you think she signed up for one of the hardest things to do in Starfleet? The thing that had a huge turnover rate, a dropout rate, excuse me, dropout rate. Do you think she did it because she really wants to show that she's the best at Starfleet, or do you think she did it because she wanted to prove to Picard that she was worth it? And she was. He was right. You notice Picard's really big on giving people second chances, by the way. This is not the first time, this is not the 15th time this has shown up. He's really big on that. It makes sense, considering he himself had a second chance, or five, in his life. You know, the little knife through the chest comes to mind, but you get the point. She wants to live up to that, to the respect and trust he places in her. It's actually interesting that despite her misgivings, he still places his trust in her for the mission. Because basically what he's saying at that point is he expects of her what he expects of himself. I don't believe in what I'm doing. I don't believe that I'm on the side of right. But I have orders, so I'm going to do it. And that's what he expects of her. And so she has to, in the end, finally choose. And she chooses the ideal. And yet, at almost every scene, by the time she finally changes her mind, there are literally tears in her eyes. And the, the, the cracks in her voice as she's talking. Again, the scene between her and Riker is actually very powerful. Because you can tell Riker gets it. And the scene at the very end is incredible. Picard doesn't say anything. He's just a statue. There's so much in that. And that, that's the power of showing, not telling, right there. And that's how the episode ends. This is a great episode. It's, it's, it's funny. Season 7 was like, okay, and then blah, absolute direct. And then we just get this out of nowhere, and then we're going to end strong. We're going to end with all good things. So this is great. Better than Enterprise or Voyager, for that matter. But I wanted to add one last thing right at the end here. So this is the end of Rolaren. Uh, she didn't want to be on DS9, so that didn't happen. And she will never be on Star Trek again, at least as of the moment that I'm saying these words. Who knows, maybe they'll bring her back for the Picard show or Discovery, or I don't freaking know. But as of this moment, she has never done a Star Trek thing again. Considering she formally joined the Maquis with this episode, it makes me wonder 
where that could have gone or where that did go. Remember, Thomas Riker also ended up joining the Maquis. In fact, working with... Uh, I just forgot her name. Uh, I wrote it on Kalita. Working with Kalita in the episode Defiant over on DS9. Which means, at the very least, they were probably in the same cell at one point in time. I find myself extremely curious how Thomas Riker and Ro Laren ended up working together and how they gelled, because it's extremely likely the two interacted in the Maquis. Of course, the follow-up question is whether or not either of them survived the genocide of the Maquis by the Jem'Hadar. Now, I know there's the, the extended works that aren't considered proper canon, and some of those do discuss that, but it's interesting to think of within the confines of the show. Next week, next week we're going to talk about all good things. Uh, it's been a long trip, guys. I hope you'll finish it with me. See you next week.